2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Impeachment Day number two. I want to recap briefly what happened yesterday afternoon and last night, particularly if if you fell asleep (laughs) long before it was over, which, of course, was Mitch McConnell's hope. But basically... Last night was pretty amazing. Jerry Nadler got up and said, I'm sad to say I see a lot of senators voting for a cover up, voting to deny witnesses, an absolutely indefensible vote, obviously a treacherous vote. This kind of triggered. Now, this this began this process that led to John Roberts reacting, which I'll share with you in a moment, a vote that against an honest consideration of the evidence against the president, a a vote against an honest trial, a vote against the United States. So here's Nadler accusing Republican senators of voting against the United States. That's 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 a breach of decorum. Right. I, you know, I wrote an op ed years ago um, saying that uh, Dick Cheney was a war criminal. This was back in like 2005. And Cynthia McKinney, the congresswoman from Georgia, read it on the floor of the House. And when she got to the word war criminal, they literally dragged her off the floor. They banged the gavel and said, stop, shut up. You're out You're in breach. She kept reading. The sergeant at arms came out and dragged her off the floor of the House Representatives. She came on our program afterwards to talk about the experience. So you just don't do that. Right. But Jerry Nadler did last night. He goes on to say a real trial, you know, has witnesses. We urge you to do your duty. Permit a fair trial. And here, here's a, a few more clips of this, uh, courtesy of Politico.
1: I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish both the House managers and the president's council in equal terms to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body, one reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. In the 1905 Swain trial a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used.
2: So we can stop there. Think- yeah, you know, the bottom line is that before Roberts said that you had I believe it was Nadler. Yeah, it was Nadler. Basically saying that Trump's lawyers were lying, which they were doing. Meanwhile, here's basically what happened yesterday. And I think that the media has done a pretty poor job of actually explaining and describing this. We didn't know what was going to happen yesterday at the beginning, and neither did the Republicans. But clearly the Democrats. We're using that almost a month as several weeks that Nancy Pelosi held those articles of impeachment to prepare for this moment because they were prepared. They had charts, they had graphs, they had visuals, they had everything. And so, you know, yesterday was supposed to be uh, yesterday was not the day when the Democrats were supposed to make their case. Yesterday was the day when they were going to decide on the rules for the impeachment trial. So Chuck Schumer put in these 11 amendments, 10 of which specifically named either witnesses or documents that they wanted to subpoena. And Schumer and the Republicans thought, okay, we're going to debate whether or not to subpoena things, you know, like process stuff. And each side had been given an hour, and Schumer obviously never never thought that they would use anything close to that hour. But the Democratic team stood up and said, okay, here's what's going on. And Adam Schiff did a brilliant job. Zoe Lundgren did a brilliant job talking about her time when she worked in the House of Representatives on the Nixon impeachment. Val Demings, Hakeem Jeffries, Jason Crow talking about being a veteran, being in Iraq, having to scavenge metal and put it on their Humvees to protect against roadside bombs. The importance of being properly equipped as the military, because what Trump was denying to the Ukraine was proper equipment. That's how it went. And finally, at 930 last night, Mitch McConnell was saying, please stop. Would you please stack these votes? Can we just call out the amendments and have a vote on them and take care of all this in 15 minutes? And Schumer said, no way, not a chance. So they got a 10 hour introduction of their case. The Democrats did. They laid out their case against against Trump over a 10 hour period. And the Republicans had no rebuttal They were completely unprepared for this, which is why I think they were melting down toward the evening. And Pam Bondi, you know, the former uh, attorney general for Florida, who was investigating Trump University until Trump gave her an illegal $25,000 donation out of his Trump foundation. She finally was allowed to speak. She was given five minutes at 11 o'clock and she didn't even mention the topic that was supposed to be discussed and she sat down without saying, I'm done. <laughs> it was weird. And another memorable moment, Val Demings had got up. She was talking about FOIA lawsuits, and he thought she was saying lawyer lawsuits. And so he gets up and he goes into this long rant about lawyer lawsuits. How dare you say lawyers can't have lawsuits? And she, she never said that. I mean, this is, this is how pathetic the Republicans were. Anyhow, just a recap there. Donald Trump In an interview in Davos, said in this quote, he's speaking about the evidence against him, right, that the Democrats want a subpoena. And I quote, honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. I mean, that's mind boggling. And somehow the electronic news media seems to have completely missed this. You know, MSNBC, CNN, if you're listening, you've got a quote there. Check it out another bombshell has landed in the last 24 hours. The, uh, oh, and this is as a result of these private lawsuits against, uh, you know, under the Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA lawsuits that Val Demings was talking about. The Office of Management and Budget, it turns out, there's one, this one document from Michael Duffy, who's one of the people that they tried to subpoena yesterday, from before Trump's phone call. Remember what has been released and what we think we know is that 21 minutes, or excuse me, 91 minutes after Trump finished his phone call with Zelensky, the OMB stopped the Pentagon or notified the Pentagon that they shouldn't send the money and the weapons to Ukraine. Turns out this email shows that it was the day before they were planning this. They had already started this. I mean, that's pretty breathtaking, too. Here's something I've been thinking about, and I think that There's been no conversation about this. Donald Trump basically controls his caucus. He controls the Republicans in the House and Senate. He has an absolute iron fist. He rewards people who are with him. He punishes people who are against him. Period. And a lot of us are acting like, oh, my God, we've never seen anything like this before. Well, actually, that's how Franklin Roosevelt worked. That's how Lyndon Johnson worked. And Lyndon Johnson was the head of the Senate, you'll recall. And and he was just every bit as tough as Mitch McConnell is. And that's how Ronald Reagan worked. This is not without precedent. And this is how Franklin Roosevelt was able to get the New Deal through Congress. You had actually some Republicans voting for many aspects of the New Deal. But in particular, you had no Democrats, to the best of my knowledge, peeling off. And when it came to the civil rights uh, work and the and the great society that Lyndon Johnson did in 64, 65, 66, 67. The, so just some dramatic legislation from creating Medicare and Medicaid to the Civil Rights Act, to the Voting Rights Act, all of those things. And, and there was, there were there was several several dozen major pieces of legislation that made up the great society. There were a lot of Democrats who didn't want to go along with those votes, particularly the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats, and some of them didn't. And LBJ made sure that they were not in the Senate a few years down the road. I mean, that was just it. So what this tells me is that if this should be informing our thinking, by the way, with regard to our primary votes in the Democratic primary. And I'm not recommending a specific candidate here. I'm not going to do that until the primary is decided. And then I'll advocate for whoever it is. But just keep this in your mind. If enough Americans are outraged by what Trump has been doing, if enough Americans are horrified by the charade that the Republicans have been perpetrating for three years now. See, keep in mind, FDR and LBJ used the iron fist with their caucus in order to get good, progressive, positive legislation done. Ronald Reagan used it to get legislation done to initiate trickle-down economics and lower taxes and things like that. And at the time, people didn't remember 1920. They didn't remember the last time a president did the same thing. Warren Harding did this back in 1920. And they didn't realize that it was going to lead to an economic disaster, so, you know, a lot of people went along with it. But Reagan, I would say Reagan was using that power, using the force, as it were, for a negative. As Trump is doing, he's using, he's using that power, he's using the force as a negative. So what I want in the White House next January 20th, and in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, if we can take all three of those entities two branches, three entities, is somebody who is willing to use power the way Donald Trump has been using power within the caucus. Somebody who's willing to reward the good people and punish the bad people, as it were. And obviously, I'm using my own subjective definitions of that. I will vote for somebody in the Democratic primary who I think is an absolute hard ass and believes what they're saying and is going to fight it to the very end. Because Donald Trump has demonstrated that if you do that, you can go a hell of a long way. Now, he's going a long way, you know, in the criminal direction. Franklin Roosevelt created the modern middle class. The United States hadn't had a middle class since 18, arguably 1820. And now we, again, you know, well we're now 50 fewer than 50 percent of us are in the middle class any longer but what Franklin Roosevelt created was more than 60 percent of Americans being in the middle class by the 1960s you're listening to the Tom Hartman program and then LBJ doubling down on it and taking it the next step I think this was all like really good stuff Uh, amazing I mean just all uh, there's so much going on right now it's like where do you begin with this stuff it's the assassination of Soleimani. That Donald Trump, while refusing to brief Congress, there's this so-called gang of eight. It's the two leaders, one Democrat, one Republican, of the House Intelligence Committee and the two leaders of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then the Speaker of the House and the head of the Senate and the number two Democrat in the House. And the Republican leader of the House and the Democratic leader of the Senate or the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. This is the so-called Gang of Eight, basically. Trump did not brief them. Trump did not brief Congress. What Trump did is he briefed a group of people at Mar-a-Lago about the assassination of Soleimani. He never briefed the senior officials in the House and Senate, the Gang of Eight. Said he gave his briefing to high dollar donors in Florida, essentially bragging that he didn't even need a reason to assassinate a foreign leader, that the guy was talking bad about America. Can you imagine if Barack Obama had done something like that? You know, I'm going to kill somebody who's talking, talking smack on the United States. Right. That would be instant impeachment. I mean, you know, they went nuts when he wore a tan suit, right, when he saluted with a cup of coffee in his hand. What are the biggest challenges that we're going to face one year from today? And not just the new president, the new Congress, assuming that there's a new president, but you and me, all of us. What challenges do we face going forward, essentially either reinventing America or transforming America? I mean, this is kind of at the essence of what The New York Times is talking about today, in their endorsement of amy klobuchar and elizabeth warren every four years the new york times and you know all the major newspapers do this they endorse candidates for president and you know local statewide newspapers endorse candidates for the senate and governor and things like that and they point out that there are three sharply divergent visions of america and i find it really interesting that they made this trifurcation There's the Donald Trump vision of America, which to quote the New York Times, white nativism at home, America first unilateralism abroad, brazen corruption, escalating culture wars, a judiciary stacked with ideologues and the veneration of a mythological past where the hierarchy in American society was defined and unchallenged. In other words, women knew their place, people of color knew their place, class divisions were clear, and you know everybody just needs to go back to that. Right? This is, Donald Trump's vision of America is essentially the John Birch Society in the 1960s, reacting against everything from Brown v. Board in 1954, all the way up to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the mid-1960s. So you've got that vision, which is currently the entire Republican Party And then you've got these two visions represented by Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, according to the New York Times. And they make the point that these two visions are basically, Klobuchar is saying that Trump is an aberration. This is, it was just an accident that he was elected president or it was the result of, you know, Russian interference or something. But it's not a normal thing. And we just need to return to normal. This is how the New York Times is characterizing Amy Klobuchar's understanding of the political moment. And that we return to normal by going back to the times when Democrats and Republicans worked together to slowly but measurably improve life in America. Now, in my memory, and I've been around a long time, that would be pre nineteen eighty. Because these huge ideological and political divisions, in my mind, just, you know, started with the Reagan administration in 1981. So you've got that. And then on the other side, you've got Elizabeth Warren, the New York Times says, who is just coming right out and saying, well, quoting the New York Times, President Trump was the product of political and economic systems so rotten that they must be replaced. Now, One of the things I thought was most interesting in the New York Times endorsement or op-ed or whatever was, A, they say Democrats must decide which of these two models would be most compelling for the American people and best suited for repairing the republic. And, you know, feel free to weigh in on that without trashing one candidate or the other, please. I really want to avoid the circular firing squad, but if you want to speak on behalf of one candidate or the other, feel free. Or any other Democratic candidate. The New York Times passed over Bernie saying that he would be 79. His health is a serious concern, and he boasts that compromise is anathema to him. And you should read the op-ed. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that Bernie Sanders is a good candidate, too, who could win just as easily as Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar. But what I find fascinating about this entire thing is the, this idea that there are these three visions of America— Because, you know, I would argue that Elizabeth Warren's vision of America right now, that that our systems are corrupted and broken, was essentially Franklin Roosevelt's vision of America, and Harry Truman's, and to a very, very large extent, John Kennedy's and Lyndon Johnson's, when they took on, head on, racism in America, poverty in America, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King... I would say that that vision that that Dr. King represented is the vision that says no America is broken. It's been broken for a long time. But it's particularly broken right now, I think he would say, although I can't deign to speak for him. Here or not. And I think that the vision that America isn't broken that it just, you know, needs some tweaking and some careful thought and deliberate and let's get back to normal. That was the Republicans prior to 1980. And it was the Democrats under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, to, to a certain extent. And I don't mean that as a, as a hit. I mean, this is just incremental change, which is kind of the definition of conservative. Incremental change is a good thing. And I'm not opposed to incremental change. I, I get it. And I think if Amy Klobuchar was president, I think she'd do a great job. And Elizabeth Warren, president, do a great job. Or or frankly, pretty much any of the Democrats who are running, seriously running. So, you know, a lot on our plates here right now. I also want to get into Lev Parnas and Bill Barr and all that kind of stuff. It is also the beginning of the official impeachment process of Donald Trump. And Mitch McConnell is saying, oh, we're going to bury everything after midnight, right? Brilliant. It's a new year. Is it new wrinkles? (laughs) For most people, yeah. With every passing year, we all look older. But now that's all changed thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crows, feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Simply apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within minutes, voila, a new younger you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, 50% for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, half off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998 or visit plexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. Tom here with you. I think it's uh, NBC News. It might be somebody else has dug up this quote from 1998. Alan Dershowitz, this was during the Clinton impeachment. Alan Dershowitz saying about whether or not a president has to have committed an actual crime to be impeached. Because you know, having sex with an intern isn't a crime. Lying about it under oath is, but is that an impeachable crime? Well, the Senate didn't think so, but the House did. But here's what Alan Dershowitz said in 1998. It certainly doesn't have to be a crime if you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty. You don't need a technical crime. That was August 24th, 1998. And then, of course, over the weekend, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't turn on a TV without seeing Alan Dershowitz. It was like, regardless of channel, regardless of time, I am so sick of seeing this man's face. And, uh, you know, this is just one one of his quotes. Abuse of power, even if proved, is not an impeachable offense. The framers didn't want to give Congress the authority to remove a president because he abused his power. You have to prove crimes and misdemeanors. Well, let's see what the founders actually said about this. This is from James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. Mr. Pinckney observed that the president ought not to be impeachable while in office. Mr. Davy then stands up and says if he's not impeachable while in office, he'll spare no effort or means whatever to get himself reelected. He considered this an essential security impeachment for the good behavior of the president. Colonel Mason No point is of more importance than that the right of the impeachment should be continued. Shall a man who has practiced corruption and by that means procured his appointment to the presidency be suffered to escape punishment by repeating his guilt? Ben Franklin, Dr. Franklin, was for retaining the impeachment clause as favorable to the executive Ben Franklin pointed out what was the practice before this, before the possibility of impeachment, in cases where the chief magistrate rendered himself obnoxious, why recourse was had to assassination. Franklin says impeachment is a much better way. It would be the best way, therefore, to provide in the Constitution for the regular punishment of the executive, where his misconduct should deserve it, and for his honorable acquittal, where he should be unjustly accused. Governor Morris admits corruption and other offenses should be impeachable. James Madison thought it indispensable that some provision should be made for defending the community against the uh, perfidity or negligence of a chief magistrate of a president. He might pervert his administration, Madison said, into a scheme of peculation. Peculation is when you make yourself wealthy through public money. Madison thought this was an impeachable offense he might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation or oppression. Eldridge Jerry, the guy gerrymander is named after, urged the necessity of impeachment. A good magistrate would not fear them. A good president will not fear them. A bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. And he goes on, Mr. Randolph, Wherever found, if he's guilty, he ought to be punished. The executive, the president, will have great opportunities of abusing his power, particularly in time of war, when the military force and, in some respects, the public money will be in his hands. Are we thinking about four hundred million dollars for Ukraine here? Should no regular punishments be provided, it will be irregularly inflicted by tumults and insurrections. So we must have an impeachment. Franklin comes back to he talks about the Prince of Orange, you know who. Led his country into a war. Had he been impeachable, a regular and peaceable inquiry would have taken place, and he would, if guilty, have been duly punished. If innocent, restored to the confidence of the public. So the founders were quite clear that impeachment did not require a crime. And by the way, there were no federal crimes when the Constitution was ratified. The Constitution provided for Congress to start creating You're listening crimes. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Or at least creating the laws that define crimes and the punishments for violating those laws. So literally, at the time the Constitution was ratified, there were no federal crimes. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Code Red by E.J. Dion Jr. It's How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. This is from the introduction titled The Opportunity We Dare Not Miss. Will progressives and moderates feud while America burns? Or will these natural allies take advantage of a historic opportunity to strengthen American democracy and defeat an increasingly radical form of conservatism? The choice is in our politics is just that stark. This book is offered in a spirit of hope, but with a sense of alarm. My hope is inspired by the broad and principled opposition that Donald Trump's presidency called forth. It is a movement that can and should be the driving force in our politics long after Trump is gone. His abuses of office, his his divisiveness, his bigotry, his autocratic habits, and his utter lack of seriousness about the responsibilities of the presidency drew millions of previously disengaged citizens to the public square and the ballot box. The danger he represented inspired young Americans to participate in our public life at unprecedented levels. Tens of thousands of Americans, especially women, have gathered in libraries, diners, and church basements to share wisdom, to organize, and in many cases to run for office themselves. These newly engaged citizens have created an opportunity to build a broad alliance for practical and visionary government, as promising as anything since the Great Depression gave Franklin Roosevelt the chance to build the New Deal Coalition. To seize this opening, progressives and moderates must realize that they are allies who have more in common than they sometimes wish to admit they share a commitment to what public life can achieve and the hope that government can be decent again they reject the appeals to racism that have been trump's calling card and the divisiveness at the heart of his electoral strategy together they long for a politics focused on freedom fairness and the future this new politics would be rooted in the economic justice that has always been the left's driving goal and in the problem-solving approach to government ...that moderates have long championed. It's true that these camps often battle over whether the nation should seek restoration or transformation in the years after Trump. In fact, our country needs both. To restore the democratic norms we have always valued, we must begin to heal the social and economic wounds... ...that led to Trump's presidency in the first place. Yet there is resistance to common ground among progressives and moderates alike. They often mistrust each other's motives, battle fiercely over tactics argue over how much change our country needs and squabble over whether specific policy ideas go too far or not far enough. The moderate says, hey, progressive, you think that if you just lay out the boldest and most ambitious approach to any given problem, the people will rally to your side. Really? For one thing, people may like your objective, but think you're changing things way more than we have to. And we can battle to the death over, say, a Democratic Party platform plank or the first draft of a bill. But without the hard negotiating and compromising that legislative politics requires, a bold idea will remain just a platform plank. That really doesn't do anyone any good. You subject everyone to so many litmus tests that we might as well be in chemistry class. And God save us from your abuse on Twitter if we disagree with you. You lefties have no idea how to win elections outside of Berkeley or Brooklyn, and some of your ideas are so sweeping that they'll scare potential voters away. At this point, the moderate is likely to wield the sturdy old punchline don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But hold on, says the progressive. You moderates spend so much time negotiating with yourselves that you compromise away goals and priorities before the real battle even begins. Your ideas get so soggy and complicated that they mobilize no one and mostly put people to sleep. Better to have the courage of your convictions, lay out your hopes plainly and passionately, and inspire voters to join in. Besides, you middle-of-the-roaders were so petrified of Ronald Reagan and the right wing that you caved into the Gippers' economic ideas, let inequality run wild, and gave us a racist and grossly unfair criminal justice system. The extremists have pulled the political center so far right that the only way to back to sanity is to show our fellow citizens what a real progressive program looks like. At the risk of sounding like a perhaps unwelcome counselor attempting to ease a family quarrel, I would plead with moderates and progressives to listen to each other carefully. If the events since 2016 do not teach moderates and progressives that they must find ways of working together, nothing will. If they fail to heed each other's advice and take each other's concerns seriously, they will surrender the political system to an increasingly undemocratic right with no interest in any of their shared goals, priorities, and commitments. Moderates are right about the complexity of getting things done in a democracy. Even when the boldest ideas have prevailed, they did so because complex coalitions were built. Important, and it should be said, often legitimate interests were accommodated, and some lesser goals were left by the wayside to be fought for another day. Moderates are also right that democracy requires persuading those who are open to change, but worry about how this or that reform might work in practice or affect them personally. Think losing their private health insurance. Disdaining as sellouts those who raise inconvenient questions or express qualms is not the way to build a majority for reform. Moderates are also right that Americans in large number are tired of politics that involves more yelling than dialogue, more demonizing than understanding. But progressives are right to say that for the last three decades, moderates have spent too much time negotiating with themselves. Consider all the effort Democrats put into wooing Republicans by responding to their proposals to amend Obamacare. The book Code Red by E.J. Dionne, Jr., Terry in Marion stationed Maryland. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today?
0: My question is what your view is on how we combat some of this. I know it's difficult, but this right wing rhetoric, because it doesn't matter. Even people I'm close to that I talk to gets frustrating because you could even talk facts with people. But if they're on any other platform or anything, all they'll say to me or their response is either, you know, Republican talking points, or they will say that's because you watch CNN or whatever. Mm. So it gets a little frustrating because you try to open up the door and you just see the door and the divide getting bigger. So I just wanted your thoughts on that.
2: Well, it's it's kind of the balkanization of our politics. We have, and I think that you can track this back to the 1970s and the Powell Memo when Lewis Powell said to the business oligarchs in America, to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, his friend Eugene Sindor, he said, You know, we've got to take over the media. We've got to buy media. We've got to take over the schools. We've got to start investing. We've got to basically buy professorships in colleges. We've got to edit the textbooks in our high schools and elementary schools business people and billionaires need to get active in politics we need to build think tanks that can fill the minds of Americans with these right-wing pro-billionaire stories and memes and things and and they did that the GOP just totally bought into that and one of the things that the Republican Party figured out was that if you're constantly pitching the interests of of the wealthy you know most people are not going to be with you so you know they brought along the racists. They brought along the religious freaks. And I use that word intentionally. I mean, and the misogynists. And they basically created this hardcore right-wing coalition that now lives on as Trumpism. And it has a media arm, Fox News on television and right-wing hate radio on radio and no shortage of websites and increasingly Facebook now. Judd Legum has a great piece at popular.info about how facebook is continuing to promote not just racism but open threats against people of color you know calling for lynching and things yeah. you know right now and alive there so you know I, I don't know what to do with people who live in that universe terry they're brainwashed and it's just it's it's a tough one somebody on tv and i don't i'm sorry i don't remember which show it was or who it was but just repeatedly was saying you can hate trump but you can't hate the people who support Trump. I
0: think that was Nancy Pelosi.
2: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Or no, no, it was Bill Maher, actually, on his show. Oh, and, at and Bill Nancy, Maher, right. Nancy Pelosi was agreeing with, agreeing with him. That's right, yeah, because Louise and I watched that show. And I don't know. I'm, I'm still kind of torn about that because, you know, The people who support Trump, you know, marching in Virginia with guns and putting up, you know, websites calling for the lynching of black public officials, you know, elected officials, Facebook pages. We need to draw some serious lines here. Terry, thank you for the call.
0: Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? A couple of observations. I'm glad that, uh, at least it's uh, comforting to my observations, that you recognize that the reason the articles were withheld for the time period they were is the Democrats were preparing their strategies. And that occurred to me as I was watching all of the video that they were prepared with to use either on offense or defense. Yeah, it took at least a week to put together
2: and probably more.
0: Oh, yeah, to. To, well, to cut, label, and catalog so that they could get to it. Right, and then when rehearse. They needed to. Yeah, oh, this was, they were so far ahead, and, I mean, they outguessed the defense. I mean, this is like the running a play in a football game. They totally outguessed the home team. Jay Secky looked terrible. He just looked terrible. Right. His opening, the first time he was out and talking about global war or climate change and, Oh, this is what doctors call projection. I just thought, you are so far off topic, it was laughable. Yep. But a couple observations about what Nadler did is that I think because of where Seculo and they knew that Trump team wanted to turn this into a spitting match, so Nadler kind of just pushed it in that direction so that Roberts would shut it down, shut their whole playbook down. Because they want this to be all about hearsay, obviously, because they don't want any evidence entered where you talk in civil terms about what the evidence is. They don't want it, Tom. So, going, hang on just a second,
2: Paul. I just to clearly understand what you're saying. Going back to my comment, I, I was saying it would be interesting to game out, you know, to play out step by step by step like a chess game here. What would yeah. happen if the Democrats started using words like lie that would invoke an admonition from John Roberts? And, you know, would Roberts actually kick them out? Would he change the proceedings in some way? Or would that have an enormous kind of publicity impact that might punch through, you know, a lot of people are just tuning out because they're, oh, it's just politicians, you know, that would punch through that. And I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I'm not sure if it's a good strategy or a stupid strategy, but are you saying that it was a good idea or a bad idea for Nadler to use the word lie.
0: It was a good idea because what he did, you see, Schiff and Nadler were playing good cop, bad cop. Schiff was being very polite. And what Nadler was doing was, show this is where the officials are going to throw the flag. Right. This is how the referees are going to adjudicate this game. Right. And so if you go beyond that, so in other words, now the other team, the Trump team knows that that's where the line is and Nadler helped them find that out. Otherwise, they were just going to turn this into a spitting match the whole time. Right. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is that Mitch McConnell's strategy to, first of all, put this thing, court doesn't start until 1 in the afternoon. Oh, come on, the day's half over. And this is actually working out for the irritation of the cover-up senators, the Republicans, because they're thinking, how far do I have to stay up all damn night for Donald Trump, this sleazebag? And I know he's a sleazebag. And then when McConnell put the rules, thinking it would be cumbersome for the Democrats to have to enter every piece of evidence one by one, and that would be just so cumbersome, well, you know what? They saw that coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Schumer said because uh, McConnell said he wanted to be recognized. He says, "Can we can we stack these votes?" Right. And that Schumer, was at nine thirty last said, night Eastern. Right, because he was he knew this was getting too tiresome, and Schumer said, "Uh, uh-uh. uh." You're going to have to deny these one at a time.
2: Right. And then they had the conference where the two floor managers got together and tried to work it out, and then one of them threw their hands up in the air, and they went back and talked to McConnell and said, sorry, you know, Schumer's not going to budge on this. I mean, he's got you. Exactly. He's got you by the short hairs."
0: Yeah, on your own rules. When the United States Senate, in a majority of 53 votes not to see documented evidence from the White House, From the State Department, from the OMB, the only thing that can do is exonerate the innocent and implicate the guilty. And if you don't want to see it, that means you are participating in obstruction of justice and a cover-up. Because the documents are the documents. Those aren't people's testimony who have an axe to grind. Those are the documents that they made.
2: Yes. I was also very pleased that Nadler and some of the others, I believe it was Hakeem Jeffries, I saw him, using the word cover-up explicitly. And John Roberts didn't gavel that one down. The question is, Jay Sekulow, actually several people on his team, but mostly him and Cipollone, said what were blatant lies. Now, last night during the coverage, Louise and I flipped to Fox News a couple of times during Hannity's show and during Laura Ingraham's show afterwards. And they were, but first of all, they weren't, whenever the Democrats talked, they just killed it. You couldn't hear what it was saying. They had a little picture window, but then they had, you know, Hannity was talking to his guests and uh, same with Laura Ingram. But number one, but number two, they were repeating these lies, you know, that Democrats had a secret session in the basement. And no Republicans could come in. It's just a blatant lie. And it right. was repeated again last night. I heard it repeated three times on Fox News in probably less than 15 minutes of watching Fox News. And so the question in my mind is, is John Roberts going to take a position on lies? I doubt it.
0: I don't think he'll take a position on what he's going to consider to be a lie. Jay Sekulow is a good lawyer, and he knows what a sham this is. Jay Sekulow is also a talk show host, so he was trying to play talk show host yesterday, and that's just too weak, I think. Nancy Pelosi is way, and and the, the Democratic team are way too smart for that. And they've showed that. And the way this thing has gotten off, I think it's kind of like a foot race, is they have set the tone. And the, the Republicans really can't reset it.
2: And they're halfway down the field. They're, they're halfway to the 100-yard line, and the, and the Republicans are still standing at the jump-off block going, huh, what? Yep. Yeah. Paul, you got Thanks. It, Tom. Thank thanks. You. Yeah, great minds think alike here. Uh, <laughs> this is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. A little more breaking news. This was just in the last hour or so. The attorney general of Washington, D.C., which should be a state, by the way, it has more people than Wyoming or Vermont. Anyhow, and therefore there should be two good Democratic senators. Uh, The attorney general, Carl Racine of Washington, D.C., just filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump's inaugural committee. Uh, The way it works, typically, if you want to get a ballroom in a hotel for an event where people are going to be booking rooms, and I did this for years. From 87 until until 96 or 97, Louise and I started, owned, and ran an advertising agency in Atlanta, and one of our divisions conducted seminars all around the country on how to do marketing and advertising. I would negotiate with these hotels constantly. And uh, or, or, you know, Lamar, who, who ran our, our, that division of our company, would negotiate with the hotels. And what we would do is we'd say, okay, we want a ballroom, and we're going to be bringing 30 people into the hotel tonight. And every hotel has a different threshold. Typically, it's 10, 20, or 30 rooms. If you book that number of rooms, you get the ballroom for free. And in fact, for Trump's inaugural address, or for Trump's uh, inauguration, the W Hotel in Washington, D.C., gave the committee a free room after they agreed to book a block of room guests and to spend 75 grand on food and drinks. They'll give you the room for free, but you've got to spend a certain amount. Back in the day, this was back in the back in the 90s when we were doing this. It was, as I recall, around $5,000 a day. But it varies from hotel to hotel, and, and it also depends on the size of the ballroom. But anyhow, the W Hotel gave him a free, free, free ballroom. But uh, not so with the Trump Hotel. The Trump Hotel charged the Trump inaugural committee one million dollars for that ballroom, which are typically given away for free, plus more than three hundred thousand dollars in food and beverage costs, which might be the only legitimate part of the of the uh, uh, thing. So, so uh, you know, of the expenses. So this is basically Trump taking his inaugural committee money, which had been donated from people like Gordon Sondland who gave a million dollars to the committee, laundered it through his own hotel for himself. It's amazing. There's a lot of other things in the news, too. I want to just catch you up to date, bring you up to date on. It's been reported this morning, not only that Jeff Bezos's phone was hacked, apparently by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the, the head of Saudi Arabia, or at least he set it up. He had Bezos's phone in his hand and he put in his email address and stuff like that. Boom. And I'm seeing... Uh, implications around the Twitter sphere that there's more to come on this. But in addition to this, 16 days after Jamal Khashoggi was murdered, 16 days later, Donald Trump secretly sold nuclear technology to the Saudis. Secretly. This just came out. Now, what did he get in exchange for that? This was nothing to help the United States. So it had to be something that helped Trump, right? Was this in exchange for the billion-dollar loan from the Middle East to Jared Kushner so he could pay off the mortgage on 666 Fifth Avenue? Was this additional money for Jared and, and Ivanka? Was this for Khashoggi financing a Trump Tower in Saudi Arabia? We don't know. It's something I think that Congress should be looking into. I don't know if you caught the SAG Awards. This was amazing. My friend George was telling me about this last night still clad in his tuxedo. After the SAG Awards, I, you know, we watched the Screen Actor Guild Awards on, on TV, Louise and I did, and uh, Leonardo did a great job doing a, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award for Robert De Niro. Joaquin Phoenix, you know, he, he won an award for Best Actor for Joker. After that, still wearing his tuxedo, he goes down to this vigil in front of Farmer John's processing plant in Los Angeles. This is a slaughterhouse for pigs. It's where they kill pigs. And every day, when the trucks full of pigs pull up to unload them to be slaughtered, live pigs, there's this group of people, it's called Los Angeles Animal Save, that go up to the trucks and they give the pigs water and they pet them, they touch them, they comfort them because these pigs are about to be slaughtered. It's amazing. I, I, just, I just wanted to tip my hat to Joaquin Phoenix for doing that. That is so cool. That is uh, just extraordinary. Here's Adam
1: Schiff. Now, when the President's scheme was exposed and the House of Representatives properly performed its constitutional responsibility to investigate the matter, President Trump used the same unrivaled authority at his disposal as Commander-in-Chief to cover up his wrongdoing. In unprecedented fashion, the President ordered the entire executive branch of the United States of America to categorically refuse and completely obstruct the House's impeachment investigation. Such a wholesale obstruction of congressional impeachment has never before occurred in our democracy. And it represents one of the most blatant efforts at a cover-up in history. If not remedied by his conviction in the Senate and removal from office, President Trump's abuse of his office... An obstruction of Congress will permanently alter the balance of power among the branches of government, inviting future presidents to operate as if they are also beyond the reach of accountability, congressional oversight, and the law. On the basis of this egregious misconduct, the House of Representatives returned two articles of impeachment against the president. First, charging that President Trump corruptly abused the powers of the presidency to solicit foreign interference in the upcoming presidential election for his personal political benefit, and second, President Trump obstructed an impeachment inquiry into that abuse of power in order to cover up his misconduct. The House did not take this extraordinary step lightly. As we will discuss, impeachment exists for cases in which the conduct of the President rises beyond mere policy disputes to be decided otherwise and without urgency, at the ballot box. Instead, we are here today to consider a much more grave matter, and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election. For precisely this reason, the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won, In corruptly using his office to gain a political advantage, in abusing the powers of that office in such a way to jeopardize our national security and the integrity of our elections, in obstructing the investigation into his own wrongdoing, the President has shown that he believes that he's above the law and scornful of constraint. As we saw yesterday on the screen that under Article 2, He could do anything he wants. When the president said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, they were listening. Only hours later, they hacked his opponent's campaign. And the president has made it clear this will also not be the last time. Asking China only recently to join Ukraine in investigating His political opponent. Over the coming days, we will present to you and to the American people the extensive evidence collected during the House's impeachment inquiry into the President's abuse of power, overwhelming evidence. Notwithstanding his unprecedented and wholesale obstruction of the investigation into that misconduct, you will hear and read testimony from courageous public servants who upheld their oath to the Constitution and their legal obligations to comply with congressional action despite a categorical order by President Trump not to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. These are courageous Americans who were told by the President of the United States not to cooperate, not to appear, not to testify, but who had the sense of duty to do so. But more than that, you will hear from witnesses who have not yet testified, like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney, Mr. Blair and Mr. Duffy. And if you can believe the President's words last month, you will also hear from Secretary Pompeo. You will hear their testimony at the same time as the American people. That is, if you allow it, if we have a fair trial. During our presentation, you will see documentary records, those the President was unable to suppress, that expose the President's scheme in detail. You will learn of further evidence that has been revealed in the days since the House voted to impeach President Trump, even as the President and his agents have persisted in their efforts to cover up their wrongdoing from Congress and the public. And you will see dozens of new documents providing new and critical evidence of the president's guilt that remain at this time in the president's hands and in the hands of the Department of Defense and the Department of State and the Office of Management and Budget, even the White House, you will see them, and so will the American people, if you allow it. If, in the name of a fair trial, you will demand it. These are politically charged times. Tempers can run high, particularly where this president is concerned. But these are not unique times. Deep divisions and disagreements were hardly alien concepts to the framers. So they designed the impeachment power in such a way as to insulate it as best they could from the crush of partisan politics. The framers placed the question of removal before the United States Senate a body able to ra- rise above the fray, to soberly judge the president's conduct or misconduct for what it was, nothing more and nothing less. In Federalist 65, Hamilton wrote, Where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in this own situation to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accuser. It is up to you to be the tribunal that Hamilton envisioned. It is up to you to show the American people and yourselves that his confidence in that of the other founders was rightly placed. The Constitution entrusts you to, responsible, to the responsibility of acting as impartial jurors, to hold a fair and thorough trial, and to weigh the evidence before you, no matter what your party affiliation or your vote in the previous election or the next. Our duty is to the Constitution and to the rule of law. I recognize there will be times during the trial that you may long to return to the business of the Senate. The American people look forward to the same but not before you decide what kind of democracy that you believe we ought to be and what the American people have a right to expect in the conduct of their president. The House believes that an impartial juror, upon hearing the evidence that the managers will lay out in the coming days, will find that the Constitution demands the removal of Donald J. Trump from his office as President of the United States but that will be for you to decide, With the weight of history upon you, and as President Kennedy once said, a good conscience your only sure reward. In drafting our Constitution, the framers designed a new and untested form of government. It would be based on free and fair elections to ensure that our political leaders would be chosen democratically and by citizens of our country alone. Having broken free from a king with unbridled authority who often placed his own interests above that of the people, the framers established a structure that would guarantee that the chief executive's power flowed only from his obligation to the people rather than from a sovereign whose power Amen. was conferred on him by divine right. Adam Schiff is still speaking. In his new architecture, no branch of government or individual would predominate over another. In this way, the founders ensured that their elected leaders and their president would use the powers of office only to undertake that which the people desired, and not for their personal aggrandizement or enrichment. What did those who rebelled and fought a revolution desire? No different than what we, the generations that have followed, desire, that no person, including and especially the president, would be above the law. Nothing could be more dangerous to a democracy than a commander-in-chief who believed that he could operate with impunity, free from accountability. Nothing, that is, except a Congress that is willing to let it be so. To ensure that no such threat could take root and subvert our fledgling democracy, the framers divided power among three co-equal branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches, so that ambition may be made to counter-ambition. They provided for presidential elections every four years, and the framers required that the president swear an oath to faithfully execute the law and to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Even with these guardrails in place, the framers understood that an individual could come to power who defied that solemn oath, who pursued his own interests rather than those of the country he led. For that reason, the framers adopted a tool used by the British Parliament to constrain its officials, the power of impeachment. Rather than a mechanism to overturn an election, impeachment would be a remedy of last resort. And unlike in England, the framers applied this ultimate check to the highest office in the land, to the President of the United States. Impeachment and removal of a duly elected president was not intended for policy disputes or poor administration of the state. Instead, the framers had in mind the most serious of offenses, those against the public itself. Hamilton explained that impeachment was not designed to cover only statutory or common law crimes, but instead crimes against the body politic. Hamilton wrote The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust.
2: We're listening listening to Adam Schiff make the case for the removal from office of Donald Trump.
1: Should the American people just come to expect that our presidents will corruptly abuse their office to seek the help of a foreign power to cheat in our election? Should we just get over it? Is that what we've come to? I hope and pray that the answer is no. We cannot allow a president to withhold military aid from an ally at war for illicit help in a really election campaign. I hope that we don't have to just get over that. I hope that we just don't have to get accustomed to that. Is that what we want to tell our constituents? Yeah? The President withheld aid from an ally, yeah. It damaged our national security, and yeah, he wouldn't meet with a foreign leader who's important to us unless he got help in the next election, and yeah, it's wrong to try to get a foreign power to help. It's kind of cheating, really, if we're going to be honest about it and blatant about it. It's cheating. Americans are supposed to decide American elections, but you know, I guess we just need to get over it. I guess. That's just what we should now expect of a President of the United States. I guess there's really no remedy for that anymore, the impeachment. I mean, maybe that was a good idea 200 years ago, but I guess we just need to get over it. I guess maybe the President really is above the law because they say you can't indict the President. The President says you can't even investigate the President. The President is is in court saying... You can not only not indict the president, you can't even investigate the president. Attorney General's position is you can't even investigate the president. Are are we really prepared to say that? The only answer to presidential misconduct is we just need to get over it? What are we going to say with the next president? What are we going to say with the president who's from a different party who refuses the same kind of subpoenas? and the president says to you, or his chief of staff says to you, or her chief of staff says to you, just get over it. I'm not doing anything different than Donald Trump did. Just get over it. He asked for help in the next election. I'm asking for help in the next election. Just get over it. We do this kind of thing all the time. People are cynical enough as it is about about politics, about people's commitment to their good, cynical enough, without having us confirm it for them. I think it's more than crazy. That was Ambassador Taylor's word. I think it's more than crazy. I think it's a gross abuse of power. And I don't think that impeachment power is a relic. If it is a relic, I wonder how much longer our republic can succeed.
2: Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Tell your friends where to find progressive media. And don't forget, democracy requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman.